Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Last week, we watched as King Yo suffered the consequences for the mistakes he made, and mistakes those some 200 years before him made. Regardless, though, eventually disgruntled nobles led by King Yo's ex-father-in-law teamed up with the Chenrong barbarians and sacked the capital, killed King Yo, and reinstated his original crown prince. After the Zhou capital was sacked by the nobles and the Chenrong barbarians, we discussed last week how this prompted the Zhou dynasty to make their eastern capital, now just well, their sole capital. King Yo is dead. The capital is being moved, and without further ado, the history of China, episode nine, springtime. As discussed last week, teaming up with the Chenrong barbarians and letting them, oh, I don't know, sack your capital, is really opening up Pandora's box. So on one side, your capital was now burned out, and the Chenrong, who were a sworn enemy of the civilized dynasties, i.e., the Zhou dynasty, were now posted up right at their capital gates. But there are other reasons, and as Yoda said, there is another. With the new eastern capital, the Zhou royalty that had taken out King Yo was now closer to their main supporters. Those being, of course, of the Jin state. And the Zheng State. Maps of those, by the way, will be up on the website. But the fact was, the king was dead, and the Zhou family that had overthrown King Yo had much weaker authority. They had killed him, yes, but now what? They were not the king. They burned down the capital, and they had to rely on lords from their vassal states for protection, especially during their own flight from the old capital near modern-day Xi'an to the new capital. Near Luoyang, before they left in the old capital, Prince Yi Zhou, who, as we know, was the original crown prince, was crowned king by his supporters, and was now titled King Ping. So no longer is he King Yo's original crown prince or Prince Yi Zhou, because like Octavian turning into Augustus, Prince Yi Zhou turns into King Ping. This, though, in short, was not the time to be king. With the western regions in flames, and quite literally often, the Zhou domain that King Ping took over was greatly reduced to that of just Luoyang and the nearby areas. Remember the six armies I had mentioned about two episodes ago that the Zhou dynasty had put together to smash into the Chu Confederation? Well, armies like that are a pipe dream for the new Zhou dynasty. King Ping, still a young child, and his court had to rely on vassal kings to protect them from well, other people. And on top of that, whether they were protecting them from raids, they were also needed to resolve internal power struggles. So, once fielding the largest army to have ever been seen, to then asking your vassal kingdoms desperately to sort out an internal struggle, is yeah. Quite the big shift. Essentially, while King Ping and the subsequent kings following him held the mandate of heaven, it was almost as worthless as being the king of England today. Exaggeration, yes, but the new Zhou king was really, in the simplest terms, just the figurehead of a feudal system. But yes, the mandate of heaven was still important. 
and the current worthlessness of it would lead some of the greatest questions to have ever been asked by some of the greatest thinkers. And yes, most notably, by Confucius. But you gotta keep being patient here. I know I keep mentioning Confucius more and more every episode, but be patient, because Confucius's time may not be now, but it is fast approaching. With the decline of Zhou power, the Yellow River drainage basin was divided into hundreds of small and autonomous states, most of them consisting of just a single city. Though interestingly, a handful were comprised of multiple cities. Now, according to Sima Chen and the Spring and Autumn Analects, those states on the periphery were in an interesting position, because they, unlike other states, had the power and opportunity to expand outward. And expand outward, they did. A grand total of 148 states are mentioned in the Chronicles for the start of this period. But as we will soon see, many of these just merge together, whether by the pen or, most often, by the sword. And by the end of the spring and autumn period, 128 of these 148 states were absorbed by the largest ones. Shortly after the royal family's move to Luoyang, the whole structure of power was changed. Instead of the, I am king of the dynasty, I have the mandate of heaven, and you will be my vassal, instead it was, to maintain the semblance of some authority, I will raise in rank any leader of the state with the most powerful army. In essence, the Zhou king would give the title of hegemon to the leader of the state, which, as mentioned, that had the most powerful military. But what does this entail for a hegemon? Well, the hegemon were obligated to protect both the weaker Zhou states, because of course the dynasty couldn't do that. What do you think we were running here? An effective ruling system? Nah, get out of here. But not only could the kings not protect the weaker states, they required the hegemon to protect the Zhou royalty from intruding non-Zhou peoples, which were, by the way, the Di barbarians to the north, the Man barbarians to the south, the Yi barbarians to the east, and yes, our favorite, the Rong barbarians to the west. And while by law, the Fengjian feudal system, which I had mentioned a few episodes ago, was still the law of the land, there was so much fighting amongst these states that in practice, this was not practiced. It was often, literally, every man for himself. But the king's prestige was that of like an early pope, in that they legitimized the military leaders of all the states and helped mobilize collective defense of Zhou territory against the barbarians. By now, though, it is 722 BC, and quick update from the rest of the world, Greece has just finished their first Olympic Games, which occurred in 776 BC. And in 722 BC, Duke Yin of Lu ascended to the throne of the Lu state, one of the more powerful ones in the Zhou domain. Important to note this, though, because that is the year that the Lu began to keep an official chronicle, dubbed the Spring and Autumn Annals, which, along with its commentaries, is the standard source for the Spring and Autumn period. Now look, Corresponding chronicles are known to have existed in other states as well. It wasn't like the Lu were the only ones that knew how to write about what was happening. But everyone else's chronicles have been lost, and we are left with just the Lu's. 
Nonetheless, though, in 717 BC, Duke Zhuang of Zheng, tongue twister for our Western ears, yes, went to the capital for an audience with Zhou Dynasty King Huan. And King Huan, by the way, was, yes, King Ping's son. But King Huan didn't give too much time or respect to this duke. And the duke, who was from the Zheng state, saw that. And he felt it. The duke was, after all, the chief protector of the capital. He expected a little bit more than just a cold shoulder. Now, nothing immediate comes from this sour encounter, but Duke Zhuang of Zheng doesn't forget the way he was treated. And the Zheng state as a whole doesn't either. Because, look, the word duke is going to come up a lot in this episode. And no, I am not hyping up my own university. But instead, a duke in this context is the king of a state. So when I say Duke Zhuang of Zheng, he was pretty much the king of the Zheng state. So with that, we move on. Because two years later, the state that the duke was from, Zheng, became involved in a border dispute with the Lu state regarding the fields of Shu. The fields, by the way, had been put in the care of the Lu state by the king himself for the exclusive purpose of producing royal sacrifices for the sacred Mount Tai. Yes, same state that kept the history, it seems. So, there is that. But now it is the Zheng state's turn to rub the king the wrong way. This measly state, regarding this sacred land as anything but sacred, was an insult to the heavens, and more short-sightedly, to himself as the king. These two, King Huan and the Zheng state, now both did not like each other. And in 707 BC, this would reach its breaking point. Because King Huan had had enough of Duke of Zheng and the Zheng state, and he launched a punitive expedition against the Zheng state. Look, a hundred years ago, a royal invasion usually meant you were royally... Yeah, you know. But now the dynasty is a shell of its old military authority. The royal Zhou invasion of the Zheng state petered out, but then that duke from Zheng... That pesky duke decided to counterattack into Zhou territory and began to raid and plunder at will. And the royal army finally caught up and a battle was set. Small angry state versus the royal Zhou dynasty. And yes, King Huan was there himself and the Zhou were ready and on their own turf. But this is a new age. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, the Zhou are not as strong as they used to be. The Zheng military stipulated that the conglomerate army of the Zhou dynasty was weakened by the fact that several of the state armies that comprised the entire army had been in civil war recently, while the others that comprised the Zhou dynasty's army had just been beaten hard by the Zheng state. What occurred was the Battle of Shu Ge. And in this battle, the rebellious Zheng state attacked the Zhou wings as they were made up of those aforementioned weakened forces. Soon, the Zheng army had crushed both wings, and with a double envelopment, crushed the rest of the Zhou army. King Huan himself was wounded and snuck out just in time, but it was the Zheng who saw victory. But again, Pandora's box was opened. You could now disobey the dynasty, and there was nothing the dynasty could do to you. And this conflict would kick off centuries of warfare without respect for titles which would characterize the period. 
But the Jung state would never be able to overthrow the Zhou dynasty, as they soon had their own internal issues and petered back into the backstage. So now it's just angry vassal states acting however they want with not a clear obtainable end goal. So the hegemon system needed to be put into a more esteemed position. And in 685 BC, the first recorded hegemon was implemented. The first hegemon was Duke Huan of Qi. Birth date unknown, but Duke Huan, not to be confused with King Huan of the actual Zhou dynasty, had reformed and centralized the Qi state's power structure. Qi spelled Q-I. This state consisted of 15 townships, and communication and mobilization were hard to achieve. But Duke of Qi's reforms provided the state, already pretty powerful in their own right from control of some vital trade routes, with greater ability to mobilize resources than the mere loosely organized states that surrounded them. And by 667 BC, the Qi state had clearly shown its dominance from everything from economics to the military. So Duke Huan got, well, the leaders together from the Lu state, the Song state, the Chen state, and the Zheng state, and they all agreed and elected him as their leader. So to promote the hegemon position and also to put a cap on how much this duke could gain power-wise, the new king of the Zhou, King Hui, gave Duke Huan of Qi the title of Ba, B-A, which translates to, yes, hegemon, which in turn would give Duke Huan royal authority in military ventures. And you could see how that could go wrong, right? Empowering one aggressive state with the auspices of the Zhou dynasty? Yeah. But Duke Huan of the Qi state doesn't really ever overstep his power like that. And an important basis for justifying the Qi state's dominance over the other states was presented in a slogan. And the slogan was, quote, supporting the king and expelling the barbarians, end quote. Or in Chinese, Zunwang Rangyi. The role of subsequent hegemons would be framed in this way as the primary defender and supporter of nominal Zhou authority and the existing order, essentially saying that you can't fight against us. We support the king and just want to get rid of all the barbarians we all hate. To fight against us would be supporting the barbarians. Using this new authority, Du Quan did the following. He intervened in a power struggle in the Lu state, protected the Yan state from encroaching Western Rong nomads in 664 BC, and in 660 BC, he drove off Northern Di nomads after they invaded the Wei state and the Xing state, providing people with provisions and protective garrison units, and led an alliance of eight states to conquer Tsai and thereby block northward expansion of the Chu state. But in 643 BC, the hegemon Duke Quan of Qi died. Hardly a new problem and one we have seen many times before, and will see many times after this, but his five sons fought to the death over who would take his place as the ruler of the Qi state, thus immediately throwing the whole state into decline. But decline of the hegemon state leaves room for, yeah, a new state to rise. Right after the Qi state's succession debacle, the Song state claimed hegemony. The Song state, by the way, were the remnants of the old Shang dynasty, so maybe they just wanted their long-lost prestige back. But regardless, Duke Xiang of the Song state 
decided to do what Duke Juan of Qi had done. He organized peace talks, and of course, yeah, aggressively invaded all of his rivals. But Duke Shang of the Song would never become the official hegemon because, in short, he got a little too big for his boots. While all of his staff said, hey, don't do this, Duke Shang of the Song state said no and attacked the much larger state of Chu. The Song forces were defeated at the Battle of Hong in 638 BC, and the Duke himself died in the following year from an injury sustained in that battle. Man, this Chu state is really throwing some people off. After the Duke of the Song state's death, his successors adopted a little more modest foreign policy, better suited for the, you know, country's small size. But by 636 BC, the Zhou dynasty needed to give someone, anyone, the hegemon power. Now, the Jin state saw this as their chance. The Jin state, after all, was big, it was powerful, and it was always a Zhou ally. And when Duke of Wen of the Jin state came into power, he did, well, the same old. Killed his relatives, duh, centralized the state, and obviously conquered his neighboring states. 16 of them, to be exact, then did something interesting, because they assisted King Xiang of the Zhou dynasty in a succession struggle in 635 BC. And for this, King Xiang and the Zhou dynasty awarded the Jin state with strategically valuable territory near Changzhou, near the old Zhou capital. But remember how I said the Qi state was in decline after the hegemon Duke Huan of Qi died? Well, the Chu state, yes. The Chu state that arguably started this whole slide downward and has been in the story pretty frequently had started picking off borderlands with the Qi state. So, realizing the opportunity he had, the Duke of the Jin state got the Qi state, the Song state, and the backwoods Qin state, spelled Q-I-N, to launch a joint military operation to defend the Qi state from the Chu. And at the Battle of Changpu in 632 BC, the Jin army's center held the extremely strong Chu center in place, locking them right there. The chariots began to come in from the left, and now the Chu were surrounded by two sides. And it wasn't long until the Jin-led coalition's right wing encircled the Chu army from the right. Fully encircled, the Chu were soon destroyed. But where this battle exactly took place is still sort of a mystery. It's probably around somewhere near modern-day Henan, but nobody is sure. But it did happen, and it is one of the biggest of this period, and it was the most detailed of the day. And Duke Wen of the Jin state's loyalty to the Zhou king was, well, it was seen. And at an interstate conference, King Xiang awarded him the title of Ba, the hegemon. Being the second official hegemon would have been great, but he didn't get a chance to enjoy it. Because just four years later, in 628 BC, King Wen of the Jin state died. And after the death of Duke Wen in 628, a growing tension manifested in the interstate violence that turned smaller states, well, particularly those on the border between Jin and Chu, into sites of constant warfare. The Qi and Qing engaged in numerous interstate skirmishes with the Jin or its allies to boost their own power. So the big states were fighting each other, and the little states were just stuck in the middle of it all, 
And yeah, if you cheated and read ahead, the Qin State's time was now afoot. Because the Duke of the Qin State, spelled by the way, Q-I-N, claimed to be the hegemon. But look, while he was powerful, yeah, he never really did anything, and nothing spectacular at that, and therefore he was never given the official title of hegemon. So by 613 BC, the last of the five hegemons took the reins. But wait, yeah, wait, where are the five? I asked the same question. We were supposed to be at four right now, but only two seemed to have been official. Yeah, it's confusing, but there were five. I think it was two official to this point, and now, the Qin state. But nonetheless, plot twist. It was the Chu state's time to shine. While the Jin state had looked and succeeded into becoming the hegemon of the Zhou, the Chu were doing the same thing. They were making alliances, centralizing their power, and yeah, conquering. But as we know, the Jin got word of this and wanted to put a stop to their conquering. And we know, as we just heard, the Jin state crushed the Chu state. But by 613 BC, the game had changed because the Chu had turned their harassment to the Zheng state. But this time, when the Jin state tried to step in again, the Chu won. The Chu state, which had lost the Jin state, had just won. The rematch saw a new result. And this made the Chu the de facto hegemon of the Zhou. But the Zhou dynasty was not cool with this and instead viewed them as second-rate and not worthy of the title. In fact, the titles they gave in the Zhou dynasty to the king of the Chu state was that equivalent to the second lowest level of noble. So, the fifth and final hegemon was not, well, yeah, officially the hegemon. And his charade ended in 591 BC. So, where does that leave us? The hegemon system was a way for the powerless Zhou dynasty to maintain some remote semblance of authority, but all it did was lead to the conquest contests that slowly saw state after state invade its smaller neighbors, spark extreme animosity, and accomplish nothing but personal power growths. Instead of hundreds of small and weak states, the Zhou now had a dozen or so extremely strong, internally centralized, economically independent, and militarily dominant states. You can now start to see how this and can will all go south. What happened to the Mandate of Heaven? What happened to the Virtuous Emperor? Well, someone born in 551 BC will ask just that. So that is where I will leave it for this week. Next week, yes, it is time. Confucius. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you all next week on The History. History.